0: As Americans, we have always treasured our liberty, and the Declaration of Independence rallied our forefathers to fight for it with the words, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. We may hold these truths to be self-evident, but I've recently been reminded that that statement comes from the political philosophy that guided the founding of our nation and not from God's Word. Nowhere does God grant to all men the unalienable rights of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. His promised blessings are contingent upon obedience to his commandments, the forgiveness he makes available when we transgress them, and the relationship he makes available to us through his Son. Be that as it may, the importance of liberty in the political arena is something few of us would deny We may disagree on its origin or how best to achieve it and how to hold on to it. We all agree it is vitally important. Paul would have us understand that the same is true of our religious liberty. As Christians, we have a liberty that is very precious, a liberty that was secured for us at a great price. A liberty that our Heavenly Father promised to give us right after our freedom was lost in the garden. But a liberty that was withheld for thousands of years while we were being made ready for it. A liberty that was held in trust until 2,000 years ago. When Paul arrived in Galatia, he declared that that trust had been opened, and he proclaimed liberty to those in bondage to sin. Many of the Galatians responded to that good news, and both Jews and Gentiles were granted liberty in Christ. But after Paul's departure, the Judaizers came to town. As a result, many of the Galatians were turning their back on the most precious religious freedom any man could ever have. And while you might think that religious freedom is a freedom to worship, it's not. It's the freedom to come before a holy God without fear of rejection. Obviously, we are very grateful for the freedom to gather in worship, a freedom we lost temporarily due to COVID. But even in oppressive political systems where that right is denied, Men can be free to come before God. That is our most valuable religious freedom. And that is the liberty the Galatians were in danger of losing. It's to that liberty, that religious liberty that Paul calls our attention this morning. A liberty that mankind did not always have, but a liberty... It had been long promised. Now I say, as long as the heir is a child, he does not differ at all from a slave, although he is owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by the father. So also we, while we were children, were held in bondage under the elemental things of the world. In our society, children are born with inherent rights that no one should be able to take away. And among those are the rights to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Children don't always get to exercise those rights, even the right to life. But most of us agree that children should have those rights simply because they are human beings. In addition to those fundamental rights, children are also born with rights that come from the family into which they are born. For some, those rights are rather meager. They're born into families with very little to offer them materially or otherwise. Others are born with a proverbial silver spoon in their mouth, they're born billionaires. But even those born billionaires usually have access to their inheritance limited for a time. Their familial rights are held in trust until they are able to handle them. In Roman society, privileged children were under guardians and managers, in addition to the tutors we've already talked about. The guardians protected their person and the managers their possessions. And Paul notes that during those years, a child is in many ways no different than a slave, and some kids probably can identify with that phrase. He has to be told what to do and only has access to that which is provided. Now, obviously, a wealthy child could be provided with much more than a child in a poor family, which some today insist is an intolerable inequity. But even a rich child had only limited access to that which was his by right. It was held in trust for him until adulthood. When the father determined it was right for a son to be given access to that which was his by right, it was made available to him. And that's true even today when an 18 or 21-year-old is given access to a trust fund that was perhaps set up for them when a child. Well, Paul is using this as an analogy to teach us a very important spiritual truth. And that is that our spiritual inheritance was held in trust until we were ready for it. Thus, he says in verse 3 So also we, while we were children, were held in bondage under the elemental things of the world. I think we understand the point he's making. But who is the we, and what are the elemental things? That he does not make clear, and our understanding of one is dependent upon our understanding of the other. If the we refers to the Jewish Christians, the elemental things probably refers to the law, the details, the ABCs of the law. If we refers to Gentile Christians, the elemental things probably refers to rudimentary pagan beliefs, beliefs that centered on the elements, air, earth, fire, water, or the heavenly bodies, the the sun, the moon, the stars. Now, both were designed by God to lead mankind to faith in him, but both also kept men in bondage for a time. Some were bound by the law's requirements, and others were bound by what they deemed the controlling influence of nature, or the heavenly bodies. So Jews and Gentiles alike were at one time in bondage to elemental religion. They were both heirs to the promises of God, but neither was free to enjoy their promised inheritance. The date set by the Father hadn't yet come, but now it had. But when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, in order that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. And Because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. When the time was right, our Father gave us access to our inheritance. And when the fullness of time came, everything was ready. It was obvious that the Jews were ready because 3,000 accepted Christ on the very first day they were given the opportunity to accept him as Savior. The Gentiles were ready as well. There was religious unrest in the Greco-Roman society, and a common language, as well as Roman peace and Roman roads, made the rapid spread of Christianity possible. Everything coincided with the time set by the Father for us to receive our inheritance. Whether he caused all things to come together or waited until they did makes no difference. When the time was right, he gave us our inheritance. And when Paul tells us he gave it to us through his son, he tells us volumes about Christ. When he said God sent forth his son, he makes it clear that Christ existed before he came to earth. By specifying that he was born of a woman, Paul at the very least hints at the virgin birth. Being born under the law reminds us of his Jewish heritage and his obedience to the law. When Paul says God sent him to redeem those under the law, he's reminding us that the law revealed us to be slaves to sin and that we needed to have our freedom purchased for us. And by telling us that Christ came that we might receive the adoption as sons, Paul makes it clear that we must be adopted back into the family of God, that the original father-child relationship was fractured by sin. Christ was sent to bring us back into a familial relationship with our Creator, to allow us to call God our Heavenly Father. He sent forth the Spirit of His Son to inhabit our hearts so we could cry out to our Heavenly Father as a little child cries out to His Daddy. In fact, we've been given the liberty to come before the Creator of the universe and actually call Him Daddy. Abba is the Aramaic equivalent to daddy. We're no longer slaves or even children treated like slaves. We're no longer under guardians and managers. We've been given the greatest freedom of all. We have been given our inheritance. We've been given full access to our heavenly father and to the blessings he promised long ago to give us. We've been given our rightful place in the family of God, not because we've been good kids and deserve it, but because he promised to give it to us and did everything that needed to be done to be able to give it to us. Like us, the Galatians had been made heirs of God, but they were in danger of losing everything Not because God was going to cut them off, but because they were cutting themselves off from their own inheritance. Let's read on in Galatians 4. However, at that time, when you did not know God, you were slaves to those which by nature are no gods. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how is it that you turn back again to the weak and worthless elemental things to which you desire to be enslaved all over again. You observe days and months and seasons and years. I fear for you. Perhaps I have labored over you in vain. Both the law and pagan religions had kept people from really knowing God. The law taught about God and his demands, but it kept people at arm's length from God. In many ways, it made him unapproachable. Pagan religions created false gods. They distorted the true image of God and made people slaves to a lie. Christ came to change all that. Through Christ, we can intimately know God and be fully known by God. Through Christ, we once again become children of God, and through Christ, we become perfectly acceptable to a holy God in spite of our failures and our sins. Why would anyone give that up? Why would anyone go back to a system that creates barriers between men and God? A system of rules and regulations? It makes no sense. But that's what the Galatians were doing. They were going back to the weak and worthless things that are found in elemental religions. Things that in and of themselves could never bring anyone into relationship with their creator. They were going back to rules and regulations, to mandated festivals and seasons and observances. Now, those things had their place, they were designed by God to lead men to faith in His Son. But once brought into a restored relationship with their heavenly Father and given their inheritance as heirs of God, why would anyone go back to the life of a slave? It made no sense. But that's what the Galatians were doing. And they weren't the only ones. The Colossians were doing the same thing. And in writing to them, Paul would say, I say this in order that no one may delude you with persuasive arguments. See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception, according to the traditions of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. Therefore, let no one act as your judge in regard to food or drink or in respect to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day. If you have died with Christ to the elementary principles of the world, why, as if you were living in the world, do you submit yourself to decrees such as, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch? These are matters which have, to be sure, the appearance of wisdom in self-made religion and self-abasement and severe treatment of the body, but are of no value against fleshly indulgence. So easy to slip back into law without even realizing it. You know, after coming to Christ, some are led to believe that they must do certain things to stay in God's good graces, and that religious observances are the deciding factor in maintaining a relationship with God. Like most heresies, only part of that. Is true. It is true that after coming to Christ, you will start doing some things you didn't do before and stopping some things you did do. And some religious observances will become very important to you. But it is not true that your relationship with God will be lost if you don't maintain a certain standard of compliance or schedule of observances. God knows your heart. In fact, you are fully known by him. So following a prescribed program of religious observances, in an attempt to convince him of something that isn't in your heart, means nothing to him. In fact, it makes him sick. Isaiah told the people that God had had enough of their burnt offerings, that their incense was an abomination to him, that their festivals and feasts had become a burden to him, and that when they spread out their hands in prayer to him, he would hide his eyes from them. And Amos told us that God hated their festivals and solemn assemblies. He even told them to take away the noise of their songs. He wouldn't even listen the sound of their hearts. In and of themselves, those things mean nothing to God. So it's impossible to earn a relationship with God or maintain one through religious observances. Relationship with God is a gift given to us through the sacrifice of his son. When we receive it, it will change us and our religious practices. But we must never allow our relationship with God to degenerate into the same kind of legalistic observances from which we have been freed as heirs of God. Through Christ... We have been given blessed assurance of our standing before a holy God. Let's celebrate that.